Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. FX Guide is proudly sponsored by SIGGRAPH Asia. FX Podcast is the official podcast of SIGGRAPH Asia, this year being held in Hong Kong, December 12th to 15th. For more information, go to SIGGRAPH.org slash Asia 2011. Hi and welcome to this week's FX Podcast. I'm Mike Seymour. Well, this year we're covering the SIGGRAPH Asia 2011 show, which has just finished. And of course, uh, this is the official podcast of the show. So we're really glad to be able to bring you this rundown on the show. In the second half of the podcast, we have a great interview with one of the lead riggers from Lucasfilm. Now, we really wanted to include this because we just don't think riggers get enough attention. And in a show like SIGGRAPH, you can stumble on these kind of papers or presentations that are real gems, such as Seema's presentation on rigging that she gave, which held up a really serious window to this area of the industry. Um, And this lets you see past the hype of any particular film to the real artistry that happens inside a company like Lucasfilm. So I guess that and the fact that Clone Wars is produced in Singapore, and of course, that's where SIGGRAPH Asia is heading next year, this all seemed very appropriate. But before we do that, in the first part of the show, what we want to do is try and examine a theme. Because at each of these shows, we try and find what is the theme or trend that we can sort of digest from the show and bring that to you if you haven't been able to attend. And this year, that trend seemed to be, for me anyway, this kind of uncertain ground underneath the area of rendering. Now, why there's loads of great technical papers, and we've profiled several of those over at uh, our two now FX Guide video podcasts, we wanted to, to flag some different things for you here today. And the first of that is this trend where we're seeing some movement in rendering. Now, I'd have to say that rendering has almost been a sleepy product category up until now. Um, It's not that it's not regularly improving and expanding, because it has, but it's really that the status quo was pretty well established. And thus, for the last few years, people have basically either had sort of mental ray with their animation packages because it was bundled, or the studios have been using RenderMan for high-end films and Look, both of those things are still true today, but there are some other trends emerging. For example, there's a lot more use in ray tracing. Now, RenderMan itself is presented now as a hybrid renderer, both capable of scanline and ray tracing, but there is a move to explore just straight ray tracing alone. There's also a move to explore GPU over CPU. And then there's render farms, which are increasingly becoming vital, even for very small facilities with only, you know, six or eight uh, servers. So rather than just present a smorgasbord of various interviews from around the show, what we thought we'd do is we try and develop these two themes. We're going to look at rendering, and then we're going to look at one of the jobs that we think deserves more attention, which is rigging. But before we do that, I want to start with renderers, and a good place to start is V-Ray, because V-Ray launched V-Ray 2.0 here at the show. And I walked through some of the new improvements with Constantine from Chaos, who is their 3D and rendering specialist. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So explain the difference between V-Ray 2 and what's happening with V-Ray RT. Uh, So uh, you mean the difference between V-Ray 2 and V-Ray 1.5? So actually the difference is quite big. Uh, because in V-Ray 2 we added a lot of uh, additions, a lot of new features, a lot of uh, uh, cool stuff. And also we have a lot of uh, things going on behind scenes, uh, like optimizations of the GI algorithms, of the dynamic geometry creation algorithms, and a lot more. And uh, also, of course, probably the biggest change is uh, uh, the, uh, the RT, which is now added to the, to the build of V-Ray. 
and uh, we have a real-time rendering solution running on CPU and on GPU also. Uh, so probably that's the biggest benefit uh, for the users. So some of the things that you've done in the new version to make life really simple, for example, the paint work on cars, that's now a really much easier way to work. Yes, yes, I can say a few words about that. So before, uh, if you had to set shaders for uh, layer shaders for car paints, metallic paints, uh, you had to, to go over a long process of uh, layering a couple of materials, one on top of the other. Uh, but now with the new version, you can just uh, one click, create one shader, and you get the car paint out of the box, and it works great. And also it has the additional effect of flakes uh, that can embed it to the car paint, uh, something quite cool, and it looks great. So another example that we saw from you last night was the P-Text in Maya, where you actually had a car model. In this case, though, you were using P-Text to do, obviously, uh, texturing of that car model. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so uh, the P-Text is a new technology which is quite powerful, so it will allow you to, uh, to paint textures without having UVs on your uh, models. Uh, and uh, P-Text was not supported in 3ds Max, and also it was not supported uh, in V-Ray 1.5, obviously. Uh, and uh, this is a new addition to, to the new service pack. Uh, so basically now users can take advantage of this uh, great technology. Another thing that's new in the service pack is the uh, hair stuff that you've had in Prubus. Can you talk about that? Uh, yes, uh, the, new, uh, the new thing there is the hair shader, uh, the very hair shader which was added. And uh, this hair shader is a really optimized uh, shader that works with uh, 3ds Max hair and it also works with uh, a plugin known as uh, Ornatrix hair. And this is a widely used plugin for 3ds Max. Uh, it's famous for its, uh, for its uh, fast exportion of, uh, of hair hair primitives, uh, so V-Ray supports that, and also the hair shader comes with uh, a really great texture, which is the V-Ray hair sampler info node, uh, which gives you the ability to map the hairs along their length. Uh, and of course the shader can be mapped uh, with textures, with uh, vertex paint, and uh, it's quite quick and uh, looks, uh, looks quite nice. Yeah, that, that changing along the length of the hair texturing, coupled with some of the stuff you were showing with the backlight, was producing really nice results. Yes, uh, also, the, yes, you mentioned that, but the subsurface scattering, the backlighting of the hair also uh, looks great, and uh, this is something quite important when you deal with, uh, with shading hair and fur. So can we talk about the uh, lens distortion tool now? Because that seems to me a really great uh, addition to what you've been doing. Uh, yes, I can say a few words about that. Uh, so uh, the new tool added to, to VRA 2.0 is actually the lens analysis utility. Uh, so this is a standalone application, uh, but uh, it will allow you to analyze uh, camera uh, properties, like analyze camera distortions, uh, based on uh, real photos taken with, uh, with the actual camera. And after that, you can use these distortions in your 3D projects. And uh, that's crucial, in my opinion, because uh, uh, if you want to add 3D objects in a, uh, CG uh, in a real environment, for example, then you want to match the distortion. Otherwise, your CG objects will float like that uh, during animations. The lens distortion tool also gives us other things other than just lens distortion, doesn't it? Yes, it can basically undistort photos also, if you, if you decide to do that. So uh, it gives you the ability to print a test chart, uh, which you place on the wall, for example. Take a couple of photos of that uh, chart with your uh, real camera. And after that, uh, uh, it will create a lens file. And this lens file can be, uh, can be applied to the, to the photos taken with the camera, and it will undistort the photos. So that's one additional thing you can do with, uh, with the same tool. 
Um, so let's talk about uh, some of the 3D Mac stuff, in particular the stereo tools. Uh, yes, so uh, in V-Ray 2 you have this great tool which is uh, uh, the V-Ray uh, stereo uh, helper, stereoscopic helper it's called. Uh, so the stereoscopic helper uh, is just uh, one click workflow uh, to getting stereo images. So you just create a helper and you, uh, every, every time you render after that you'll get a stereo image uh, created by V-Ray. Uh, and also in the in the stereoscopic helper, we have added one great uh, addition, uh, which is called the shade map. And the shade map will allow you to create uh, create a map on the hard drive, and after that, uh, change or add depth of field to your images without having to uh, to wait a long time. Basically, it's a tool for optimization purposes. So, uh, in terms of optimizing, one of the things that's really important is dealing with very large geometry, very heavy geometry. And here you've got some advances in terms of the uh, proxy stuff. Uh, yes, uh, Vira has always been famous for its, uh, uh, for its handling uh, huge data sets. And uh, uh, so it's done through the usage of the Vira proxy, of course. Uh, but uh, the cool thing uh, here in V-Ray 2.0 and in the new service pack uh, is that we're always trying to optimize the proxy, uh, trying to uh, make it faster uh, and uh, also uh, take care of the proxy working with the new hardware that's coming out. Uh, so the, prox uh, the proxy now is even faster than before. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's a great tool that you can use. So uh, can I talk to you about displacement uh, and in uh, particular yes, the sort of more complex displacement? How far can you take the displacement stuff uh, that you're doing now in, in V-Ray? Uh, so the displacement in V-Ray is quite advanced actually at the moment. Uh, so first of all I can uh, say that uh, V-Ray supports all, all kinds of displacement. Uh, like uh, you can create 2D displacements, 3D displacements. Uh, also 32-bit displacement maps are supported. Uh, which can be created from ZBrush, Mudbox, and other applications. And uh, the coolest thing is that vector displacement is supported. Uh, so the vector displacement itself is not just the height field. Uh, you can actually displace uh, geometry to the side, uh, which can allow you to create really complex stuff. And uh, also with the help of the V-Ray water level, uh, you can actually create, uh, uh, you can help uh, your, uh, you can help the guys that are doing the modeling uh, create really complex stuff with just using textures. Excellent. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to discuss with you, if I can, about the uh, the light dome HDR stuff because I'm I'm a big fan of HDR lighting and uh, it works very well in V-Ray. Can you talk about uh, that? Yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, IBL image-based lighting, we have uh, this great light source which is called uh, the V-Ray Dome Light, uh, and uh, the Dome Light is probably the most uh, powerful tool out there for creating image-based lighting uh, since it can. Um, you can map an HDR image to the dome light and the dome light will emit actual direct light in the scene. So with the dome light itself you don't have to rely on uh, global illumination to, uh, to create the lighting in your composition. Uh, you can just rely on the dome light and it will uh, produce perfect results. Can you explain that a bit more? Uh, yes, uh, so the, the process is as follows. So you create a dome light in your scene, after that you map an HDR image onto the dome light, and the dome light itself will create an imaginary dome or a sphere surrounding all the objects in the scene. And after that, V-Ray analyzes this HDR image uh, and emits direct light from the surface of this dome. Emits direct light. And uh, 
uh, global illumination can just add to the quality of the effect, but uh, actually you can work, work without uh, global illuminations, uh, which, is, uh, which is great for animations because the dome light will never produce flickering. Uh, the only artifact that it might produce is the noise, but you just increase the sampling and you'll get uh, rid of the noise. So uh, can you give me an example of some of the customers or projects or anything that's currently using V-Ray and, and when V-Ray 2 is available, the service pack that we're talking about? Uh, yes, uh, so uh, V-Ray is quite popular in the architectural industry. Uh, so uh, at the moment, after it was released for Maya also, uh, we're uh, starting to, to introduce it to the movie industry, also to the VFX industry, to the gaming industry as well. And uh, we're having success at the moment, so I'm really happy about that. And uh, soon it will be out for soft image uh, in the beginning of next year. Uh, so this will be uh, one great addition to, to the palette of tools that we provide. Uh, and um, also, what else can I say? And the service pack, service pack 1.5 for V-Ray, uh, will be out next week for 3ds Max, and a week later it will be out for uh, my users also. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Well, as I said at the outset, probably the, the most powerful or well-known renderer is RenderMan. We don't have an interview with Pixar, though I did want to touch on them because they were there at SIGGRAPH in force, and they had some really great overviews on the product starting with a bit of a history lesson from uh, Dylan Sassin. And Dylan is uh, basically walked through during the normal sessions that were happening sort of during the day at SIDGRAPH, um, the history of RenderMan right up until um, an outline of what the future of RenderMan is. So the RenderMan uh, 4.0 actually and beyond that, and also the RenderMan Pro Server 16. But there was also a very, very solid RenderMan user group which covered some of that ground but also um, discussed... Uh, a couple of jobs that were really interesting, in particular cars and also uh, the new film that's coming out, La Luna, and looking back at a previous short that they'd done. Now, RenderMan itself has been developed since 1988, and it's an incredibly robust renderer. Like, it's scalable, it's professional, and it rightly, I guess, owns the high end. But what goes into RenderMan is based on production demands, not only of Pixar itself, but also ILM and all the other visual effects houses that use it, because there's an enormous amount of growth in visual effects films in addition to just fully animated films. So obviously we tend to think of RenderMan being particularly closely associated with Pixar, but a lot of the stuff that's, that has gone into RenderMan actually reflects the huge growth that RenderMan has experienced over the last decade in visual effects films, which have actually outstripped quite dramatically the growth in animated features. Animated features, of course, have grown, and each one more complicated. Um, I mean, I think in an earlier podcast we pointed out that when they went to re-render the original uh, Toy Story, they loaded up the files, they actually had them uh, at Pixar to re-render in stereo, and when they hit render, it happened so quickly, they actually thought they hadn't rendered um, because they were so light compared to today's stuff. And yet, even with that extra complexity that we're seeing in a Toy Story 3 or a Cars 2, whatever, the number of films that are being made that are visual effects films versus the number of films that are just fully animated films, there's a lot more visual effects work going on. The fact is, though, that RenderMan is perhaps um, a bit complicated for some people. It is, however, very efficient. And a good example of this was given in the user group uh, because all the cars that were used in the crowd scenes of both Cars 1 and, for that matter, into Cars 2 
um, were actually just boxes with displacement maps. So they were super fast to render, but literally the car or a, a model of a car was ray traced and they worked out the distance from the edge of a effectively a bounding box to where the car was and they recorded this. And then that was just used as a three-dimensional displacement map. So what you took away from that sort of hero car, I guess, is the way of displacing a box to a car so that you could populate countless times nearly an unlimited number of cars in the background and have incredibly fast uh, render times. And so when you see a Cars 1 or even Cars 2 crowd scene with small cars in the distance, they're just basically boxes and they're all um, uh, procedurally done and, of course, animated from a procedural base. But more to the point, they look like real Pixar cars because they actually came from real Pixar cars, albeit without the (laughs) the side mirror sticking out the side because convex, uh, sorry, concave Shapes don't work very well um, for the displacement mapping, of course. But then they're so small you can't tell. Actually, there was a point that was made not even at SIGGRAPH, but at the earlier CVMP conference in Europe uh, by Geordie Bars, who was is, is the 3D creative director at the Mill. And this is a conference that John Montgomery went to. And John has recorded some stuff, and that's actually going to be um, coming to us uh, generally from CVMP in the new year. But uh, Geordie pointed out in a lecture that he gave at CVMP that basically renderers are falling into trying to do one of four things. So to paraphrase Jordy, they're either real things, which are basically a copy of the real world. They're hyper-real things, which is what normally you get when you've got a, uh, a perfect enhanced car. So, for example, not in the film cars, but if you had a TVC or a commercial of a car, that would be a perfect car. Um, and then you have, of course, semi-real stuff that's basically an, an altered version of reality. And then the artistic stuff, like the film Cars 2, where it's basically purely creative. And those are the four primary categories you're thinking about when you're hitting renderers. Well, the first of these, the real, copying the real world, is something that's really focused on by Maxwell. And this is the next interview we have. Maxwell's not really known so much for its VFX work, perhaps. It's perhaps best known for its its more realistic rendering of architectural and stuff. But it really does aim to do this first category of very, very real stuff, a copy of the real world. Now, Maxwell is at version 2.6, and I spoke to Dario Lenza about the improvements in Maxwell. And I started by asking about Maxwell's reputation of producing these very photorealistic imagery. Interesting, as you'll hear in this talk when we uh, go on, and then it's picked up in the following interview after this when we talk to mental images. Um, and it certainly it's a point that I picked up when I was listening to many of the uh, NVIDIA talks, is that shaders are kind of dying and they're being replaced by more sampled or physically accurate BRDFs or normally layered BRDFs. Um, well, Maxwell really pushes this hard. It goes for this physically accurate rendering. Um, it tries to basically have less knobs to adjust, uh, a simpler kind of UI. And by the way, that's something that Arnold also does, which perhaps is one of the reasons why it's uh, been growing as well. But this idea of physically correct rendering is is of course conceptually brilliant but it's also traditionally been thought of as a slow approach to the problem and this is one of the questions that um, I put to Dario in our interview. Maxwell is based on the physical equations of uh, light, light transport. Instead of having dozens of tweaks, um, everything inside Maxwell uh, behaves just like the real world. So the camera, the materials and the light is behaving just like the real world. So uh, you get a extremely realistic image. All the images you produce with Maxwell are completely photorealistic. Uh, in addition to that, this makes also Maxwell extremely easy to use. You don't only get the most amazing photorealistic images you ever had, but also it's extremely easy to use. 
uh, you get rid uh, uh, of uh, dozens of panels with a lot of algorithm parameters. Everything is based on the real world. The camera behaves as like the real world. You uh, will have the same parameters as you have in a regular camera. Uh, you will have the same parameters to control a light that you have in a light bulb. So everything is really intuitive. You have very few parameters to tweak and you get photorealistic images from the very beginning. From your first render in Maxwell, everything look like, uh, looks like a photograph. So it's a huge improvement for, for anyone that wants to get a pro quality. Uh, uh, using Maxwell, very easy to use in one week, you are a Maxwell expert and, 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 and you produce uh, highly realistic, photorealistic images from the beginning. So every, every, everybody that uh, tries Maxwell don't want to, to come back. So let's discuss the algorithm. It's obviously there's a path tracing, but actually it's directed path tracing, isn't it? Can you discuss yeah. that? Uh, well, yeah. We, we, we use a, a bidirectional path tracer just to get the results uh, and optimize the results for caustics. So uh, a, a ray tracer, a regular ray tracer, will take uh, forever to, to solve a, 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 a caustic in a nice way. So the bidirectional uh, approach gives you a, a scattering in a, in a very optimized uh, solution. It, it provides you caustics uh, really fast. Uh, caustics in Maswell are really fast and, and they are beautiful. Uh, you will love to see it. So there's a perception out there that Maxwell is slower than Renderman or uh, even, say, V-Ray. How do you feel it sits in terms of performance? Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we know that this is the, the main perception. Maybe this, was, uh, this came from Maxwell One. Maxwell One was uh, an ongoing product. So it, it was a, a beginning project. So maybe it was slow at this moment. But from Maxwell Two, version two, uh, Maxwell is not, not uh, slower anymore. It's not uh, slow anymore. Uh, uh, you will see that you can have beautiful, clean, photorealistic images in, in very few minutes. And instead of that, you, uh, it is also important to, to take into account the sunset, the, the scene setup. Instead of having hours of a scene setup just to optimize lights and things like that, uh, you set up completely a thing in Maxwell in minutes. And you, in Maxwell, you also get uh, an interactive preview. You also get, you can get resume your renders. You reduce to almost zero the, the situation where you have to re-render, relaunch your render. Uh, you can tweak the lights during the render or even after the render has stopped during the light's intensity and the light color. So everything is highly optimized. Your workflow is really highly optimized. And we are perceiving from our current uh, users that they are using Maxwell because Maxwell is the only uh, secure to uh, meet their deadline, their deadlines. So instead of having Maxwell just, well, but I know that it is low, instead of that, they're using Maxwell because they, they reach their the deadlines. So it is, it is amazing to, 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 to hear that, that our users are using Maxwell because they, it saves their time. So, so it is great. Uh, I, I encourage everybody to test Maxwell just to get rid of that perception that Maxwell is slow. Maxwell is, uh, um, provides you a, very, a really fast uh, workflow, a really fast uh, a scene setup, a really fast light, uh, lighting uh, uh, editing, and it is not a, a, a slow render anymore. So how does it scale up for production in terms of either working with render farms or just dealing with very large data sets? Yeah, we have, uh, we have a, a, a built-in uh, network system. 
provided with Maxwell. So you can distribute your render in your render farm. Obviously, you can use your own uh, uh, render uh, manager. And uh, Maxwell has a, a very strong scalability in, uh, inside the cores of a computer and between several computers in the network. So uh, it is great. Uh, the, the, uh, we, are, uh, we are measuring almost a 100% scalability uh, result. So, so it is great. In fact, you can uh, also uh, uh, distribute the same render to several computers and inst instead of render rendering regions, uh, making every node to, to compute the whole scene, instead of that, of that we send the, the same scene to all the nodes. Every uh, node uh, render the whole image and you assume the result from every node just to get a cleaner image. Maxwell well the image advances, the, the, the render goes on getting cleaner and cleaner uh, result. So in that case, uh, the scalability of this process is, is way better than having buckets or having regions. So, so we are very happy with our network system and we are measuring uh, almost 100% scalability uh, uh, when distributing uh, the render across uh, a network. So it is great, the result. And how does it work with very large geometry, like large data sets? Amazing. In fact, as we voxelite, as we create a key tree to distribute the geometry in the scene, at the beginning of the process, once it is done, the render is not affected. The render is not affected by the amount of geometry in the scene. So Maxwell can handle millions and millions of polygons without impacting the render time. Because it's of the great. voxel subdivision? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it, is, it, is, it is great uh, to see millions of instances of objects, millions of objects in, in the scene and get uh, cool result without impacting, uh, impacting the render times. So it's great. Uh, we are very happy with this, uh, this development. As I said before we had that interview, at SIDGRAPH there was a really strong presence from NVIDIA and I went to uh, hear some of them and a lot of people turned up. In fact, Mental, uh, Mental Ray and, and iRay were pushed hard by NVIDIA at the show and I spoke to uh, Barton Gorboy. Now, he's the ARC or the Advanced Rendering Centre Training um, and Special Projects at NVIDIA team and, and I asked him about Mental Ray in production, in particular his view on GPUs because, of course, NVIDIA is a company that has a really strong interest in that CPU-GPU divide. But actually, I started out, uh, before I even got into that, by asking him about this move towards more realistic, um, less workaround kind of approaches to lighting and rendering, and the move to renderers with more accurate BRDFs, as we just said before, but also HDR lighting and, and also more ray tracing. Because I, I like to think of it as... The time has finally come with regards to the advancement of technology to take advantage of what we would call brute force, very simple techniques. Uh, I like to think of that light is an actual very simple thing. It travels in one direction and then it, it doesn't change unless you bounce off something or something causes its direction to change. Now to actually make real light simulation, you have to do a lot of processing of these simple things. So when rendering first started, a lot of it was approximating techniques and, uh, and to kind of uh, simulate 
light and not do as much indirect light at first, there was a lot of tricks being taken. But as processors got faster and there was more memory we could use, we can actually get uh, closer to the actual simulation of light, which is really just an unbounded infinite ray tracing thing going on at all times around us. So this is really, of course, you know, it sounds like we're talking about the lights, but actually the light is, is realized by us by the material properties of the things that it's hitting. Right. It changes. I mean, a light won't change direction unless it hits something, and that, that something will reflect it or transmit it or, you know, or, or reflect it in one direction more than another, and that's what gives us the look of shininess versus a matte material, a diffuse look, uh, versus whether something maybe light's going through something. So in terms of the strategies for NVIDIA, like clearly um, the company has enormous GPU kind of mm-hmm. technology, a lot of chip processing, mm-hmm. but uh, by the same token, a render farm is normally like a CPU-based large mm-hmm. kind of farm. So at the production end, are we going to see this just still on a CPU kind of farm environment, or do we see the farm becoming a GPU farm and there are issues there? Where is the kind of direction? Well, many, this is a somewhat of a controversial topic. This is probably why you're bringing it up. Uh, some people think that the GPU will not be involved with production rendering, and some people believe that it, it will have a significant impact in production rendering. We are going to continue to have uh, advanced rendering help guide our GPU design. So, of course, we hope that the GPU will have a major impact on production rendering. And as, as I said, as, as, produ- as processors get faster, as GPU gets bigger, that's also going to happen on the GPU side. And as that happens, we can actually simulate real light much better. So there's going to be some kind of disruptive happening in rendering. We're seeing spots of it now. Uh, what we're doing in Mental Ray is trying to uh, adapt it so that it can evolve with both approximating and brute force techniques in mind. And uh, I think there will be a significant you know, force in GPU affecting production. I think it's controversial what kind of production it's going to affect. I mean, uh, you hear some people thinking of, well, we can, we can use this right away with virtual set kind of work. Uh, and other people say, well, it's going to have only specific advantages in, like, for example, fluid simulations, and it's going to be very specific and it's going to be very custom. Well, even if it's very custom, it could have a significant impact, and it already has had significant impact for very custom. I mean, there's some really good, uh, I and mean, fluid sims is a good example, really good sim work that can mm-hmm. hit the GPU. But at the CPU level, surely the paramount thing in this period that we're in right now is that I get the same image out of a GPU solution that that might go through you guys or a GPU. I mean, you basically want, you don't want to know when the images have come back that, oh, well, hang on a second, that was the other thing and I had the wrong. And that's that's somewhat, in in iRay, we took a a great amount of effort to make sure that what we used in the algorithm was simple enough. And we, we call this consistent sampling, by the way. It's beyond unbiased. It's consistent sampling. And we are going to make sure that what, whether you do it on a CPU or GPU or different forms of GPU, you're going to get the same results because you're going to converge on exactly the same results over time. And does that come into the, because we're now talking a, a very specific hardware, because obviously that's the whole point of GPUs, mm-hmm. does that become an issue for when you basically do a rev or do you go another generation? Because uh, it seems to me that you may have a problem not just obviously making sure that CPU and GPU are the same, but that every version of the GPU is compatible and that a new version doesn't mean that half your pictures on your farm that were on the new GPUs are different than the old. Because you've, you've got quite a lot of correlation right. between actual hardware and, and With IRA, again, because we're actually simplifying it for parallelization, 
where that's actually not as much of an issue. Uh, what it does provide you as GPUs get more advanced is that they'll just become bigger. They'll, they'll be more, more processing on it and therefore we'll be able to do more complex effects. The, the, the larger the memory, the larger the scenes that we'll be able to put in them. Uh, we're, and we're also working on, on out-of-core techniques as well, so the, the, the memory doesn't limit you. So there's, there's many factors going into the fact that we're going to probably retain some of the more recent algorithms we've developed because they can scale well. We developed them with a purpose for scaling up no matter what the GPU ends up being able to do. It's, I mean, we've spent a lot of time engineering something that's very simple, scalable thing. As I said, I attended, and a lot of people attended these um, NVIDIA lectures that were covering things like, uh, well, basically a whole lot of subjects from NVIDIA, but especially V-Ray, IRA and stuff, <clears throat> cloud rendering. But one of the things that was really interesting is this actual trend of having companies like NVIDIA, but also Autodesk and the Foundry having these kind of mini conferences, like almost a conference inside a conference. So there was a cordoned off room that had presentations all day Tuesday from NVIDIA, but Autodesk also had the same thing. They had great talks from Rising Sun and other people. And the Foundry also did the same thing, I think, on the Tuesday as well, um, where it had great talks from people like, uh, for example, Alex Fry talking on Ocular from uh, Happy Feet 2, I think. And we hope to bring you that in an upcoming FX Guide TV episode uh, in the new year. Well, this was Pipeline FX first SIGGRAPH Asia, and Pipeline FX makes Cube, and it's a very strong product for them, especially in China and Korea. So it was the first time they uh, exhibited at SIGGRAPH Asia. And I caught up with Richard Lewis, who's the CEO on their booth on the top level of the show floor. Now, this recording is a little noisy because we were, of course, on the show floor. But I started asking Richard why Cube and in particular their whole approach to running render farms and having such an efficient way of looking after multiple different apps across uh, the same farm was just so popular. And what this thing was they call smart rendering. Well, we recognized uh, two years ago, we did a, a world tour and visited a lot of studios, broadcast stations, post houses, but focused on visual effects studios. And, and what we heard from them was that they needed to more intelligently manage their render pipeline. They couldn't just keep throwing capacity at it. So buying more render licenses, buying more blades, more servers, more heat, more air conditioning. And, and everyone wishes the cloud would just solve all that, but it doesn't. So they needed to utilize everything they had better. So efficiencies in uh, things that we've addressed since then with software is efficiencies in license dispatch. So we actually dispatch to a host trying to optimize the vendor's rendering license model. So if a nuke license allows you to run as many nuke jobs as you can on a host, if we dispatch a job to a host, we'll try to fill that host with nuke jobs. So rather than just buy an, a license for every machine we have, make sure you're optimizing those licenses. The same thing with reporting, understanding your utilization. We've uh, gone into studios and found that maybe they're only using 20% of their CPUs. They have a lot of CPU cores, but the average use in a week is 20% for a variety of reasons. So understanding that that's the case and then filling up all those cores, using all of your memory, using everything you have, um, re requires what we call smart farming or intelligent render farm management. So we've been working hard on that for the last two years and, and have come a long way with things like auto render wrangling. Um, I was going to mention that because some of the auto tools, I think, are yeah. some of the really huge benefits, especially for people in the trenches. Oh, yeah, and, and when the, the economic downturn happened and everyone fired their third shift render wranglers late at night, plus their R&D teams, 
Um, we needed more of that specialized intelligence to be delivered out of the box. So with auto wrangling, if you have a bad server and it chews up a couple of frames in a row, we'll take that server off the farm and send an email about it. If there's a bad job that fails no matter which server the frame runs on, we'll take that job off, hold it pending, and send an email. So in the morning, you come in and look at your list of potentially bad servers, potentially bad jobs, and you already know what to work on. But at least the rest of your stuff gets done. So you have a much higher likelihood that your work will be rendered. We consider rendering business critical. Uh, my background was in business critical and mission critical data storage systems. So for hospitals and banks and for the Final Fantasy project at Square, it was not optional whether that storage was available or not. And of course, Final Fantasy is where it actually first came out of, wasn't right. it? Right. So my IT company in Hawaii, we built that studio and supported them for five years, and then we bought the intellectual property when they closed, uh, Troy Brooks and I. So, so one of the things I also like is, of course, the... The importance of being able to manage the farm is not just about what's happening in terms of bits and bytes. It's also right. the human interface. And you have good controls that allow people to actually understand what's going on and reporting, for that matter. Yes. Um, yeah, another thing a lot of folks said was that we don't know if we need more software licenses. Do we have enough RenderMan licenses? Or do we just need more servers? Or, you know, what is the bottleneck in our render farm? Or is it our, maybe our storage system? You know, we partner with people like BlueArc that solve that problem of I.O. I.O. is a huge render farm problem um, that can't be solved by an application, but through reporting and showing the pending load charts and things that we have, you can understand what the bottleneck is. We even track license usage now. So you'll know I, we've used all of our V-Ray licenses, for example, and all these other jobs had to sit and wait until those V-Ray licenses were released. We actually need to buy some more V-Ray licenses. It strikes me that the huge advantage you have versus something like Tractor and isn't so much that there's anything fundamentally wrong with a Tractor. It's just that you're basically software and hardware agnostic. You basically give that overview coverage between different apps as opposed to just solving inside an app. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, Tractor and Alfred have always been RenderMan-specific render managers, um, but all studios use a lot more than just RenderMan. So we, we came at it from where Autodesk has Backburner and Pixar had Alfred, and there's a lot of things that ship for single apps. Um, we endeavor to cover every rendering application and even a lot of transcoding applications like red transcoding people will do through Cube. A lot of QuickTime generation farms, you know, anything you can process and distribute and prioritize and uh, report on and see um, historical reports of when did that happen and if it failed, why. Uh, managing all of that stuff is really the challenge. Most studios have a lot of infrastructure. They've got lots of stuff. But, but it is critical that, that everybody plays well with each other, mm -hmm. and you can kind of be the scorekeeper on how well they're playing well with each other. Yeah, absolutely. So we write plugins for all the major applications. That's right. And, um, and we cover all three operating systems truly. So we have every variety of customer that 100% Windows, 100% Mac, 100% Linux, or every variety around there. And GPU and CPU present any issues? Not for us because the renderers support the GPU. So for example, if you're using V-Ray and you have GPU cards, we support V-Ray and V-Ray supports the GPU so it'll utilize it. Uh, we did support Gelato a long time ago with NVIDIA, um, but since then haven't really needed to do any GPU development. So if somebody's a really huge facility and you have some very big customers, it's likely they understand this pretty darn well. But I, just for those people that are sort of at the cusp of smaller farms, at what point is it economically viable for them to consider talking to you? Our average installation is 30 licenses, and our minimum base package is five. So we do have a lot of five and ten seat customers. They're mostly broadcast stations and post houses and, and small design firms. 
Um, so it really, where customers come to us is when they want very good professional technical support, if they want consulting at all, or if they want any training, we offer a two-day training course. We just did a two-day class at Pratt University. We just did a two-day class at ESPN. Those are private classes. So they could run a lot of things, but they want to partner with a company that will give them software, services, training, and support. So General Motors and RIM and people like that, they can afford to buy kind of the best and with service. Um, but the other side of things is there's a dynamic in licensing where we allow an unlimited number of jobs per host. So if you really look at the VFX mix of rendering, uh, we can be a quarter the price of our competitors because of the way they license. If they license per instance and you're running four instances per host, it's four times the license price. So I've been working with a lot of studios to model their next three years of pipeline and really what the costs are based on license models. And we started off as the most expensive manager per license. However, we always allowed unlimited jobs per host. Back when hosts were only a single CPU or two CPUs, wasn't that big of a deal. We were still sort of more expensive. But today, hosts are 24 cores. So to fill a 24-core box, you can fill that with a $300 license from Pipeline FX. So let's talk about that in terms of cost. So uh, if I was somebody setting up with a 30-seat kind of license, I've yeah. got some Nuke and I've got some kind of, like, say, V-Ray, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of doing this. Is there any kind of return on investment that you think about in terms of uh, profile? I mean, how much am I looking at to get into it? How should I think about that proposition? Um, well, I can definitely break it down relative to competitors, but if, as long as you're running two or more jobs per host, uh, we're going to be less than a tractor or a deadline from ThinkBox just because of the way we license. Uh, we also only license on a host that's currently doing rendering, and they're all floating. So you can load our software everywhere in a facility, but if I only have 10 machines that are rendering at any one time, I'm only consuming 10 licenses. Um, Tractor actually switched to sort of our model like that, except they continue to go by instance rather than by host. But as CPUs become more dense and hosts become more dense, that's going to be, become, you could potentially be spending $1,000 on your Tractor license per host. And they'll have to change that model, you know, stake So just to be clear, the licensing is host or core or... Host. Host. It's per host. So we've seen a vast explosion um, in, like, say the last 10 years. You go back, like, just 10 years, just in the number of VFX films and CG films. Yep. At the high end, of course, that's reflected down. How have you found the growth in the market, especially as in the last couple of years it's been rough in North America? Um... You know, I I honestly believe we're at the very beginning of computer graphics. You know, I got my first PC in the mid-80s. I did a 3D model of Raleigh, North Carolina in 1986 for my architecture degree. And I slept next to the computer because it took 30 minutes to redraw the screen. And and we're ahead of that, but not really much. Um, We have have a real love for computer graphics in schools because that's where I started. And it changed my career from architecture into pure computer graphics. And uh, we work with a lot of schools. We have about 150 universities that are our customers now. But there are millions of CPU cores in universities that are unused completely uh, most of the time. And whether it's just a lab that's turned off because there's no class this semester or an unwillingness to share because you're not sure if you can get that resource back in time if you need it. Um, Our software solves a lot of those problems with a clustering technology we have that gives you priority on your cluster but will allow someone else to use it if you're not. Um, and, and we have years of helping people with that.
We well, thank Richard for that. And in fact, Richard and several of the other people we're speaking to today are also talking to us in FX PhD. if you want to uh, check that out if you remember. We have uh, video interviews and stuff with them as we are looking at some of these areas in more depth uh, this term in FX PhD. Well, look, I also wanted to talk to somebody who deals with large render farms, and we caught up with Tommy Burnett. Now, many of you will know Tommy because he's uh, the global or the head of Global Pipelines at Ireland, based in Singapore. And I want to talk to him about their render farm software management system, which is unique to Ireland, but of course deals with two different countries, uh, California and uh, Operation and the Singapore Operation. You'll know Tommy from our FX guide coverage of Olympic, because uh, Sony and ILM presented at what I'm going to call the American SIGGRAPH, obviously it was held in Canada, but the, the, uh, the other SIGGRAPH where they launched uh, Olympic. And he was one of the two presenters at that, and that is available at FX Guide. So I started by talking to him um, about that and how he found the reaction to Olympic. Tommy, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, I think we spoke to you last at SIDGRAPH in Canada mm -hmm. when you were doing the sort of joint announcement on Olympic. How did that go? Uh, I, th I think it went pretty well. It was pretty well received. Uh, I think what, what actually we were most excited about was just the fact that at that moment, you know, we, we were, we'd been busy getting it ready, you know, making sure that we could guarantee this is 1.0, you can trust it and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, our uh, partners, the commercial vendors like um, Autodesk and uh, SideFX were actually able to announce on the same day that, that they had support for it as well. So it wasn't it wasn't this, you know, we're ready, and then a year later everyone else is ready. We were able to do it together at the same time, and I think that, that added a lot of extra impact to, uh, to the announcement. So now you're based in Singapore. Yes. But your mandate, I guess, is um, the efficiencies of, like, the global pipeline. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if we could talk about that, especially sort of from the point of view of, I guess, lighting and rendering at the sort of back end of that pipeline. Mm -hmm. What are the sort of major issues that are confronting ILM today on that? Well, uh, speaking from the global perspective, probably the biggest issue is, is really it's a, the, the global aspect of it. It's uh, making sure, basically the way that we have things split across the studios is, is we have people working on the same projects, the same shows, in both studios, and we've built up the capabilities in Singapore to the point where we can do any, anything, basically all the same tasks. So all, the environment has to be identical in both places just because of the, the sort of assumptions built into our tools and pipeline. So keeping everything in sync and getting all of the data, the shot data, the, the geometry, the assets, the takes of movies over across the ocean in time, only sending only as much as you need, and getting it you know, in the right place so that when someone comes in for dailies at 8 o'clock in the morning, everything they need is there. If you, you miss that time window, you've lost 24 hours you know, because people move on with their day. Uh, so it's really the, 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 the biggest challenge is making sure that we send everything we need to, but not more. <laughs> because there's only so much bandwidth, there's only so much disk space, um, et cetera. So that's that's where most of our focus goes on in the global. Yeah, because I mean, it, it seems like a trivial problem, right? You just think, oh, I want to sync stuff, but I mean, it's the two time zones aren't in sync. You got to be careful about when you're syncing, and then eight thousand miles is is a pretty long distance, also. But also, you don't want to be syncing things like uh, sim data and stuff. Like, right, so yeah, exactly. There's huge amounts of stuff that would have to sort of move around. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a great tension between you know someone uh, in California wanting to help someone in Singapore out with something, you know, check out my shot. Um, do you send, do you just CP the entire dang directory, or do you send over just as much as they need? How do you find out just as much as they, how, how much is just as much as they need? You know, it's actually a pretty uh, tricky problem, and it's, it, you, the, the question 
is answered differently depending on what tools you're using, what uh, what kind of data you're talking about. And I guess in that score, Olympic really fits in with that because it's such an efficient data structure for moving between. Yeah, the, the the fact that, and in fact, the fact that it's a, a single file that holds your entire frame range and everything, it, make, it it really dramatically reduces the problem. You know this was the take of that animation, just send that file, that one. There's no external uh, dependencies, no external references. It makes it a lot easier. So shifting gear to just one of those two facilities now, one of those two locations, um, you recently got a site license of Katana, which is mm -hmm. also a very good tool for improving that kind of efficiency of the, uh, the lighting artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the introduction of Katana into the studio is going pretty much hand in hand with our shift over, also with Alembic, to a, uh, a cache-based workflow. We kind of, uh, we basically were hurting ourselves, honestly, if you look at it at the end of the day, trying to stay super flexible, uh, making everything in the shot live all the way up to the last minute, which gives you all kinds of production flexibility, but it, it really makes the, uh, the problem of handing data from artist to artist or shipping it around the world much more complex. So um, we, a lot of other people had already figured this out. <laughs> we came late to the game, and that was when we started working on Alembic was... was um, because uh, we had decided that we needed a good um, caching system, a good uh, cache format to store the data that we're going to be handing off there. Um, so Katana fits in really, really well with that because once you've gone into this, this cache format and you know that you're going to be reading from the cache like at render time, you don't have to have everything live in the scene to produce your, your render data, the artist's uh, setup, what the lighter is looking at, can be a dramatically reduced uh, version of all that data. You can you can load a low-res proxy or just look at bounding boxes and know you're still going to get the high-res complete scene coming out uh, in the render. So how does this work in terms of the local, or are there local major render farms in both locations? Because because a huge amount of uh, data moves between the, you know, the farm and back again, and of mm -hmm. course farms aren't cheap. I mean, do you have duplicates in both locations? We do, yeah. The, in Singapore, the data center is not as large as the data center in California, uh, but it's, it's approaching it. It's, it's growing. So one thing that we don't do currently is, even though we're sharing production on both sides, we don't like have an artist that's working in California run a render in, in Singapore or, or vice versa, just because the, the latencies are, are going to kill you. And also, uh, you know, to, to manage the volume of work that we do, we have a, a render support crew Right? There's, there's a team of folks that stay there all night and make sure that their problems with shots, they get restarted, they do visual checks on the, on the shots and everything. And um, just having someone, say, in Singapore trying to do a visual check on a shot in California, while it's rendering, you don't have the opportunity to, to ship everything across the wire, so they have to sit there and wait for everything to load up one frame at a time. So it, uh, for, for the render farm side of things, we keep, try to keep it pretty much separate. So obviously you're primarily a uh, render man, render farm kind of, uh, mm -hmm. and what are you running in terms of the farm management for that? Is it like tractor or stuff? You got your own? In no, it's, it's our own. Actually, it's a system called OBQ, um, and in fact, we just got a SciTech award for it um, just this year, in fact, in February. Uh, so it's something that we developed about 15 years ago. Uh, it's, it's interesting quirk is that it's entirely distributed. It doesn't, it doesn't there isn't like a single... Uh, part of the process that owns a queue of all the jobs in the farm. Every machine in the farm can hold a queue of jobs and every machine in the farm can also execute jobs. So it's every machine talking to every machine is completely uh, distributed. Wow. Which I think is, is sort of unique in the, the render farm management world. And it's primarily, because it's primarily RenderMan, it's primarily a CPU farm. Though there are, I presume, applications for GPU, though that would be a, what, a special case? 
Um, yeah, we've we've used it in a couple cases, like uh, for quickly generating uh, hair occlusion, that kind of stuff. We do have a certain percentage of the machines in the farm. So I, sh I should also say, every desktop is part of the render farm. But even the accounts not, computers get tossed into the farm. They, they? they can be. Uh, yeah, they, they can be. If you've got a, de a machine on your desktop, it's it can accept jobs. It, it's up to you. You know, you can lock yeah. it while you're working. Sure. But, um, so all of the desktop machines that have graphics cards in them, uh, those are part of the render farm. And there's a, a portion of the, the farm that's in the data center that are not desktops that also have GPUs attached to them. Percentage-wise, it's maybe like 30% of the overall pool that, that has GPUs. Right. So it's still a very limited resource, and uh, it, it can be a, a real problem for production if you have some critical part of your render pipeline that requires it. Just just get scheduling you know, the jobs for every single render to go through that small set of machines can be a real pain. So we try to avoid it, but we definitely, we definitely do make use of it. Is the GPU stuff maybe for other things? Like, I mean, would it be better, for example, for a Sims uh, problem rather than a rendering problem? Because obviously you don't want to have any inconsistency between a GPU render and a CPU render. Or... Yeah, we don't mix things. We tend to, uh, if you, you either calculate something on the GPU or on the CPU, we don't, we don't split them or we don't mix them. Uh, the, probably the most successful use we've had of uh, the GPUs is with our uh, plume uh, effect simulation system. Right. It's, uh, it's basically a um, fluid solver, but it's for smoke and fire. But it's um, outside the FizzBam. Uh, it is. It's entirely outside of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a self-contained thing. And um, that makes really, really great use of, uh, of all the GPUs to just radically speed up the, the, the simulation calculations. So in terms of getting an efficient pipeline at the high end that you guys operate at, is it really getting the uh, operator to not be delayed, or is it just managing the volume of data, or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both, because the, the, the challenges during the day when people are sitting at their desk are different from the challenges during the night when they're home sleeping. Um, so. From the artist's perspective, so as long as their jobs are done in the morning, they don't—they try—they tend not to care how long they take. <laughs> but with with the great volume that we have, you have to optimize, um, or you just won't get it all done um, overnight. But the optimizations uh, in uh, in batch or you know, uh, sort of the nighttime renders uh, are different than than the optimizations you would apply just to speed up the artist's workflow at the at the desk. I mean, that's where the again where the GPUs came in and made such a big difference for the effects sim artist. They can sit, sit at their desk and get 6, 10, sometimes 20 uh, takes of a sim out in a day, when it used to take them an entire day to do one. Right. And, and presumably, some of the other things we talked about uh, have similar pickups, because I, I know you sped up your lighting uh, pipeline as well, and the lighting artists can now operate a lot more uh, efficiently, because if basically they can uh, pre-work out the, uh, the scene and then just worry about the lighting of the scene. Obviously, they don't shift the cameras and stuff. And that, that is all reflected, I guess, from the just overall pressure you guys have for time. I mean, there's just not a lot of time to get these films done. Yep. Uh, I mean, over time, uh, basically every new film we work on, the production schedules get shorter and shorter, even though the shot counts and the complexity go up and up. So it's a, you're constantly fighting that battle. And I don't think that's ever going to change. <laughs> yeah, I think in uh, somebody who was quoting yesterday here at, uh, at SIDGRAPH Asia, uh, Jim Blinn's law, which is studio render times will never change. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's actually a challenge uh, on the human side of things because when, you, when we get faster machines or we you know, uh, speed up the, the time it takes to render something, the time it takes to write things out, uh, you would think that that means the artist would get the shot done faster. Uh, but no, it just means they can do more takes <laughs> and make it better. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Appreciate it. So as I've said several times in the podcast, we'll be having more on our 
look at rendering and some of the stuff coming from the shows uh, spilling into the January term. Well, now we want to move to part two of our podcast because we really want to focus on some of the craft of what we do. We, I don't think we've given enough attention to people doing rigging work. And on the Thursday, there was a very specific talk given by someone, I'm going to mispronounce her surname, but I'm going to try. Um, it's Gopalas Karishkin, um, but I apologize for <laughs> Seema to, for butchering her name, but she's the lead rigger on now Series 5 of The Clone Wars at Lucas Animation in Singapore. Um, as you heard in that interview, Tommy was discussing the move to caching workflow, and I was very keen to also pick up on this point and discuss it with Seema because uh, that workflow, that idea of caching stuff and not necessarily carrying stuff right through to the end is something that's basically um, a move that is we're seeing right across the board as uh, things get more and more complex and also data heavy. But anyway, I started out by asking her how the series Clone Wars had evolved over time as it had moved now uh, into its fifth series. Um, I think the, the, the quality of the show and all of us have learned a lot from season one to now season five. You know, we learned from all our mistakes and we're hopefully making only new mistakes and not repeating the same things over and over again. And then I think from the other side, the quality of the show has been really pushed. Like the expectations of the show has grown like big time. And um, Joel on the other side, who drives a creative, like always expects a lot out of the show. And even like rigs, the quality of the rigs right now, um, are way better than what it used to be. Uh, that's because animators need to provide better animation in the show. So it's been a huge learning curve, I would say. Actually, I was, I was interested in your talk when you were highlighting one of the modelling tools that uh, relates obviously to rigging in terms of the slicing, yep. which I believe started at ILM, is that right? Can you yep. tell us about that? The, the, the plugin was written in ILM like a long time ago and we discovered it and we decided, hmm, why, why should we reinvent the wheel when we already have a plugin? So we used that and just we wrapped it up to work for Clone Wars Pipeline. And yeah, we made that work. So uh, so I just, I'll just clear it for people who don't understand. Obviously there are a lot of lightsabers yeah. and those lightsabers tend to slice through things. And yeah. so you'll have a complex model that literally wants to look like someone's cut a huge knife through it. Yes, so um, you, yeah, you just like it's it's a it's a plugin that works by like intersection. It figures out what's the cutter is. In my example, there was a plane that's just a cutter cutter, and once that's figured out, it just slices on the fly. And uh, if the if the shot is really up close, it may still have to go back to modeling to make it look you know like it's been sliced there right. to uh, fix the textures. But otherwise, it just works right off the bat. And that, and, and because that's just a, a plane slice through, yes. it does provide you with a UV surface for the interior for. Texturing and stuff? Um, uh, it doesn't, the, this tool right now doesn't take care of that, but if there is a close up shot, we definitely have to send it back to modeling to fix it. So, but at least it doesn't have to go to modeling to begin with because yeah. animators don't know which angle they'd be slicing and, you know, they don't want to slice on a pre sliced model, then it limits them from what they can do in animation. So. But I think you had a button that said something like instant rigging? Or yes, yeah, it's, it's basically a tool that just um, helps an animator rig on on just clicking a button rather than sending it back to rigging team to just get that little piece of arm rigged rather they could just select what they want and click this button that just builds like a control for them and disconnects the arm from the existing rig so, so because that's happening not at a point where you're just doing the master yeah. rigging it it means that and uh, i think you were discussing this mm -hmm. the 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 point in the script where that happens mm -hmm. is where in fact 
it handles not having to just rig two things the whole time. Can yeah. you explain that? Um, yeah, so basically it's the, the point where that happens is um, when they want to slice something and, and disconnect the arm from the body. They don't want the arm to be attached to the body anymore. Um, so that's when they just select the, the geometries and then click the button that just builds a control for them on the fly. And the controller that's built uh, is also built by a tool, so the rest of the pipeline will understand that this controller was built by the tool. So we don't allow animators to build their own rigs by hand because that messes up the pipeline. We want to build tools to do that. Yeah. So. Which brings up another really good point, um, mm -hmm. because you were talking about obviously not wanting to muck up the pipeline. Obviously, yeah. a lot of the work you do mm -hmm. necessitates a really efficient pipeline. Now, you're discussing that today, and I thought we could focus on one of those aspects, mm -hmm. which is when you're handing over to lighting, mm -hmm. because uh, there are a couple of things here. Firstly, efficiency, and also you just don't want the lighters to accidentally change your, um, your setup. Can you yes. explain what happens there in terms of the move to caching? Yep. Um, so the files from animation move into another department who cleans it up for lighters and that department runs a lot of tools that converts the animation files into uh, ready for lighting files and that's when this geometry caching happens so it's a plugin that we developed in the beginning of Clone Wars that just you know bakes out the world space position of the geometries in the rig and just applies them frame by frame um, into the cache so it basically stores the data on disk and there's just a node with point clouds that gives visual representation of where the character is and what the character is doing but it doesn't have anything else in scene so it makes it really light you can't change it because it's just a point cloud data so it points to this this you can delete the node and rebuild it like it's pretty robust you can easily recreate the whole scene if you want so what is the lighter actually seeing when they're trying to work on the lighting? Are they actually seeing something that they can light to? Or is this just like a stand-in to get an idea of what was going on in the scene? Um, so before it goes, there are two options that, that they can use. So one thing, they don't even need to see the geometry. They can just see the point cloud data. So they can place their lights where it needs to be and just hit the render button. And our pipeline knows what geometries to render from. It doesn't have to be in the scene because this cache data points to where the geometry should be and all that kind of stuff that the, the render manager can understand. That's option one. That's probably the, the best right, way to so do it. So if I had a lot of uh, bad guys approaching the good guys yep. and I can see that the camera was low and they're all coming in running, mm -hmm. I would sort of know, okay, well, I can basically see what's going on in this scene. I can understand it. Yep. But that's it. Yep. And that's sort of option one. And at that yep. point, you don't even really see any of the textures on the objects. No, nope. you, okay. you don't even see but the objects. But that would be super fast to scrub. Yes, right. it's really fast to scrub and get your lighting done. But if they do want to see what's going on, they want to actually see the texture in Maya, but not just wait for it to be rendered, then they just you know load the geometries in. And that, that just loads geometries in. It doesn't bring in the rig or anything. So the, the, uh, the deformation per frame happens on the geometry directly. Yeah, and that idea of caches is something that's actually extending from, uh, well, basically all corners of, of Lucasfilm, isn't it really? Because I'm mean, ILM, you guys, like, this idea of caching is becoming a really powerful thing, given how dense and heavy our geometries are getting. Yes, I think every project has um, its own caching system in the whole company, like everybody uses cache data, and Clone Wars just happened to write their own. But of course, what you're discussing, some people might think, well, that sounds a lot like the stuff that uh, ILM and Sony talked about at SIGGRAPH in uh, Canada in terms of Alembic. Yep. But I'm guessing that we're not talking about Alembic because no. this is something that predates. Yeah, uh, this was uh, written about, I think, five years ago. So uh, 
but we're definitely going to move into Alembic so that the whole studio is using one Because it's a pretty similar concept, isn't it? Because the Alembic model doesn't carry the rigs forward. It's data light, yep. but of course it'd be different than the point cloud representation. Yep. So in a sense, you've kind of validated that workflow, albeit with a kind of different setup. Yeah, it, it, I think we'll definitely have to change the way we cache data to suit Alembic. So that, that, that part of the pipeline will definitely have to change in the near future. But, and I think the, the algorithms are completely different as well. But for now, we're sticking to what we have, yeah. And so let's get back to uh, some of the stuff you were discussing earlier in the talk, which was um, the idea of being able to set things up really well so that uh, we have control uh, and changes and we don't have to worry about constantly going in um, uh, to the hypergraphs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, for the message connection, so we write, we write our own um, UI to be able to see the message connections so that it's uh, easier for any artist to visually see what's going on rather and than... And this is in May, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we tend to write a lot of UIs to see what's going on rather than getting the artist to go into the crazy hypograph connections and mess around with it. So we just keep it clean. And it is good, but very prone to problems. Yeah. It's so yeah. big. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so that system uh, also gives you a level of abstraction. That level of abstraction avoids problems with naming and stuff. Yes. Um, we have auto-naming tools. We have a lot of QC checks so before we send uh, any asset from one department to another, there's a lot of QC checks that catches all these problems. Because so. one of the big differences between the work that you guys are doing and the work uh, of, say, a feature film team mm-hmm. is that you have to have not only like a show but multiple shows in multiple stages of production. Yeah. And you need to not only get that working from a getting the shot done point of view, but there also needs to be consistency. You don't want to have characters basically drifting during yeah. the course of the show. Yeah. So there must be um, a lot of effort put into managing the process to make sure that that remains consistent from all aspects of animation. Yes, and I think, I think that's where my role comes into play because as a pipeline lead, I have to make sure that the, the data is consistent and then we're doing the things in the most efficient possible way and that's that's why we end up writing a lot of tools and not rely on you know don't don't we avoid giving room for human errors we tend to write a lot of tools that checks that checks and checks and checks yeah (laughs) and and given that you've got a team obviously that there's a consistency there but by the same token how do you make sure you've actually got animation consistency because it's all very well to have rigging consistency or even naming consistency but we want the characters that we've known and grown to love to like act the same yeah um for for animators they when the seniors the leads create like like cycles and get it approved it's stored in the library so another animating animator starting the starting a new shot would know what the cycles should look like and what's the feeling and then for every shot they have enough notes to describe what the character is supposed to be like and what it emotes and that that's where the animation leads role comes in he makes sure that the the, the uh, acting of the characters throughout the show is kept consistent and it's what the director wants and yet the scripts must call for the lead characters to do different things in different shows because obviously there might be some plot point that requires it, the whole point of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so how often do the principal rigs get adjusted? Um, so- pretty much every season we end up revamping the rigs because we feel like we can make it better. So um, if, if a character from another season is going to be reused for this season, we definitely don't just assume it's going to work great. We open it up and make sure everything is up to the current standards because for every season, the, the level of 
expectations increases so our tools get upgraded as well so we definitely spend time making sure the old assets conform are conformed to the new standards so while you're uh well we've been discussing rigging mm -hmm. um has there been much change in rendering and has any of that reflected back to wanting to change the rigs because now things are lit differently or, or have textured differently? Um, I, we, lighting and rigging are completely um, disjointed, yeah. so to say, because we have the caching system in between. Um, so whatever we do in the rigs doesn't matter because it gets cached out and goes to lighting. Yep. So the lighters and rigging are pretty disjointed because of this caching process. So um, most of the rig updates only cater to animators. And oh, no, no, I understand that. Uh, I meant like over the terms of the series. Okay. Has it got to, is there any, any requirements that uh, the final look of the show, mm -hmm. I guess, I just oh, okay. in terms of costume right. or, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah, the, the final look of the show, definitely. I mean, I think, um, like I said, like from season one to now, the deformation of the characters itself has, has been improved quite a lot. And we starting to put in a lot of efforts in making sure there's no penetration. So when it goes, you know, after, we don't want to, that we don't want to give the lighters a hard time. They render something and then they see there's a penetration and then it comes back. So we've added like a lot of controls on the rigs so that animators can fix every little thing if they wanted to. And there's a lot of automation. So you move a shoulder, make sure that the cloth, cloth doesn't crash into the neck and all that kind of stuff. So we've improved our rigs quite a lot um, to make sure that it doesn't have to get kicked back once it's been rendered. So, yeah. Well, look, congratulations on the show. It's been a huge success, and, and it's got a very strong fan base that's really loyal to it. So thank you so much for taking time to explain it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Seema, for that interview and for all our guests this week for joining us. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. This was our last FX podcast of the year. Uh, next year, we'll be back with not only more technical discussions, but also some really good in-depth interviews, hopefully with people behind the visual effects. Plus, we have some really interesting stuff in the first couple of months of the year as we gear up for the Oscars and the VES Awards. Um, we just want to thank all of you for listening because uh, it's terrific. We really do appreciate it. If you want to hear more and see more from SIGGRAPH Asia, please check out our other two FX Guide TV episodes from Hong Kong. Look, just on a personal note, I want to thank uh, one of my two business partners, John Montgomery, who flew to Hong Kong to produce this and the rest of the coverage. I took the lead on this uh, FX podcast, but trust me, without John there and also the team back in our respective offices, uh, none of these podcasts would have been possible. But also, we really want to thank you for your support this year, your support via FX Guide Insider, uh, but on Twitter and on Facebook. And we are really indebted to you for all the comments, tweets, links, and traffic you drive to the site. We don't really advertise FX Guide. It's really driven by you, the community. Finally, we need to thank uh, SIGGRAPH Asia and the broader ACM SIGGRAPH for their sponsorship of uh, the FX podcast. We hope to see you back next year. Until then, on behalf of myself, John, and Jeff, and all of us here at FX Guide, we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and safe travels this holiday period. God bless and goodbye. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.